The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, March 2nd, 1955. I'm Sally Helm. It must have felt like summer had come early to Montgomery. It's pretty hot in the low 80s. But more than that, the real defining feature of summer, at least if you're a teenager, there is no school. It's one of those days where a mini vacation appears midweek as a kind of random gift. There's a Wednesday afternoon faculty meeting, so the kids at Booker T. Washington High School get let out early. 15-year-old Claudette Colvin steps out into the muggy Montgomery air and sees some of her friends heading downtown. At Dexter Avenue, right near a tall column memorializing Alabama's Confederate soldiers, these black high schoolers get on the bus. They pass their pink tickets to the driver and sit down near an exit door about halfway back. Colvin's in the window seat, textbooks on her lap. The bus is pretty empty at first, but before long, it's filling up. The first 10 seats, the seats reserved for white passengers, they go quick. And soon all the seats are full, so people start standing. And as the bus approaches Court Square, Colvin and her classmates notice a white woman looking down at them from the aisle. She wants them to move. She wants their seats. Colvin and three other girls are sitting in the four seats in this row, and the woman wants them all to leave so that she can sit. That was the whole point of the segregation rules, Colvin later recalls to her biographer, Philip Hoos. It was all symbolic. If she sat down in the same row as me, it meant I was as good as her. So she had to keep standing until I moved back. People on the bus start to take notice. I need those seats, the driver shouts. The other three girls in the row get up. But as Colvin remembers, I just couldn't. She didn't plan it out in advance. But she said, my decision was built on a lifetime of nasty experiences. Colvin is arrested on that bus in Montgomery after she refuses to give up her seat. This is nine months before an almost identical act of defiance from activist Rosa Parks will ignite the Montgomery bus boycott and the modern civil rights movement. Today, the lesser known names of the Montgomery bus boycott. Who is Claudette Colvin? And how does her story reveal the broader picture behind a protest that would change the nation? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So much history has unfolded in Montgomery, Alabama. It was once the capital of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis took his oath of office there, placing his hand on the Bible that Alabama governors still use at swearing-in ceremonies. Montgomery became the epicenter of the modern civil rights movement. 
the bus boycott, the 1965 voting rights march, the Freedom Rides, they all tie into this city. It's the state capital today. And it's also tiny. Dr. Kimberly Brown Pelham has taught history at several historically Black universities, Alabama State, Texas Southern, and Florida A&M. And I guess because Montgomery has such an important national history, I assumed it was a pretty big city. But Brown Pelham was born and raised there, and she says it feels more like a small town, albeit one right at the center of civil rights history. Absolutely. Tuskegee is about 45 minutes up the road. Birmingham is maybe an hour and a half. Selma, Alabama is about an hour away. You are enveloped in history by existing in this place. In Montgomery, there's Martin Luther King Elementary School, Rosa L. Parks Avenue, and, of course, there are people who lived through the civil rights movement. People like 88-year-old Nelson Malden, who used to operate a barbershop. My mother's church and the home church where I grew up is feet away from Mr. Malden's shop. I was a father's barber also. And I think I just stopped by the barbershop one day. And uh, he began to offer one of many incredible lessons about not only the boycott, but just the larger story of activism and resistance in Montgomery. Every person that was involved in the boycott, basically, was within a five-block radius from my barbershop. Including a 25-year-old minister, new in town, who drove up one day in 1954. Malden was a college freshman then, the youngest barber in the shop. I saw this blue pony egg pull up in front of the shop. This young man got up, I looked at my watch, and it was 9.30. I had a 10 o'clock class. Not a lot of time. I looked at his head like any barber would do. His hair was already <laughs> short, and I said, oh, heck, I can knock him out in 15 minutes. <laughs> he did. That customer was Martin Luther King Jr. When he finished the cut, Malden asked King what he thought. Pretty good, King said. So you tell the barber pretty good, you know, that's kind of an insult. <laughs> when he came back two weeks later, I was busy, and the other barber was vacant, but he waited on me. I said, that must have been a pretty good haircut. He said, you all right. <laughs> but he had no idea that I would be cutting one of the most historical figures of the 20th century at that time. The barbershop Malden worked in was in Centennial Hill, a Black business district. Malden attended Alabama State, a Black university. In Montgomery at the time, segregation was the law. When you grew up in a segregated mm-hmm. society, there was no ups or downs. You just born into that society. So you know the rules of the game, so you, your parents taught you how to survive. Malden recalled his earliest memory of segregation. He was four or five years old, visiting a department store with his mom. And he went over to play with a little white boy by a water fountain. A whites-only water fountain. My mother was very kind to me, but she grabbed my head and pulled it real hard. And she kept me from drinking out the white. She was kind of saved my life. Because you don't know what could happen if I'd played with the white water fountain. Jim Crow meant separate restrooms and sports teams, separate dining rooms and restaurants. In Alabama, the law was that the barrier between the black and white sides of a restaurant had to be at least seven feet high. And, of course, it meant separate seating areas on buses. This is the Montgomery that Nelson Malden knew. This system wasn't just designed to keep Black and white people apart. It was designed so that Black people had fewer opportunities to get ahead in life. 
let's be honest here, most Black people were not upwardly mobile. In the early 50s, nearly 90% of Montgomery's Black population was working class. Even those so-called middle-class Black people weren't that far removed from poverty. I, I mean, I'll give you the example of my grandmother, educated woman, received her degree from ASU, but ultimately she worked as a domestic. Many Black women did. 42% of those in the workforce were employed in private homes, according to the 1950 census. Those homes in Montgomery were largely on the east side. See, on one east side of Montgomery, you had a large white population where the ruling class lived, the doctors and the lawyers and the judges and the stockbrokers. So there's not enough domestic help on the east side to take care of the rich white people. And so they had to bring them over from the west side of Montgomery. That's why you had so many African-American women who are riding the buses, because many of them are employed in white households as domestics. The buses. The first 10 seats were reserved for white riders. If those seats filled up, the rules of segregation demanded that Black riders give up their seats. An entire row of four Black passengers would have to stand if one white passenger wanted to sit in that row. The bus driver had the authority to ask that Black person to move back. Official police authority. Sometimes drivers carried pistols. They knew that maintaining Jim Crow was part of the job description. Black passengers paid their fare at the front, right by the driver. And then, unless the whole white section was empty, they had to walk out the door again and get back on through the rear door. Sometimes buses would pull away and leave them on the curb. Can you imagine now these uh, Black folks in Montgomery are paying the same fare up front and then asked to walk around um, the back for entry? And so it's just outrageous. They are beyond tired. We also talked about this with Dr. Betty Collier-Thomas, a history professor at Temple University and the founder of the Bethune Museum and the National Archives for Black Women's History. African-Americans, they were the majority of the people riding the bus, the majority of the bus patrons, and they felt that they should receive more respect. Collier Thomas told us that Black people had boycotted segregation on Montgomery's streetcars as early as 1902. Through the 40s, a handful of people got arrested for sitting in whites-only seats. In 1952, one man paid his fare up front. Then he walked through the whites-only section to the back of the bus instead of getting out and boarding again through the back door. The driver called the cops. They shot the passenger. He later died of his wounds. You had Black people protesting from the Civil War on, but it was not a movement. That would begin to change with Alabama State Professor Joanne Robinson. Remember how tiny Montgomery is? Now, did you do Joanne Robinson's hair? Yeah, good. I got all the... I didn't know that. <laughs> In 1954, Robinson meets with the bus company and the city. She also writes a letter to the mayor asking him to intervene. Not to stop segregation on the buses told them how to basically keep segregation. All you got to do is teach your bus drivers how to be more courteous to the Black riders. She asks for those basic courtesies, allowing Black riders to approach their seats from the front door after paying their fare, assuring riders that buses would stop at every corner in Black neighborhoods the way they did in white ones. Near the end of the letter, Robinson warns, there has been talk of planning a citywide boycott of buses. 
no one answers her letter. One year later, students at Booker T. Washington High School get let out early for a Wednesday faculty meeting. And a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin boards a Montgomery bus. Here's Kimberly Brown Pelham again. She's learning about the 14th Amendment in school. The one that gave citizenship rights to formerly enslaved people. She is also studying Black history. So what a moment for Claudette Colvin to be forced to give up her seat uh, for another woman who is not elderly, who is not handicapped, but just white, all right? Colvin refuses to stand. Soon, a transit cop boards and tries to intervene. Colvin won't budge. Finally, two Montgomery City policemen board the bus. Colvin later recounts the story to Philip Hoos in his book, Claudette Colvin, Twice Toward Justice. She said she heard the driver say, I've had trouble with that thing before. He called me a thing, she says. The officer comes over and says, aren't you going to get up? And she says, no. It's my constitutional right to sit here as much as that lady. I paid my fare. It's my constitutional right. The incident turns into Claudette Colvin being arrested. They pull Colvin out of her seat. Her school books fall to the ground. An officer drags her off the bus and into the squad car. She is assigned three different charges. One, violating segregation law. Two, disturbing the peace. And three, assaulting the police officer who removed her from the bus, which she says she most definitely did not do. I went limp as a baby, she says. I was too smart to fight back. In the weeks after the 15-year-old's arrest, Montgomery's Black activists embrace her. Her case could be an opportunity to spark the movement that they're already talking about, the movement against segregation, specifically on the buses. E.D. Nixon, the head of the local NAACP, arranges for a young lawyer to represent Colvin, a man named Fred Gray. Martin Luther King Jr. would later call him the chief counsel for the protest movement. King joins other local leaders to meet with the police commissioner and advocate on Colvin's behalf. It's in many ways the young minister's political debut. Leaders also encourage Colvin to join the local NAACP youth group, a group that is led by a 42-year-old seamstress named Rosa Parks. Mrs. Parks had been an activist with the NAACP more than 10 years. She becomes a secretary for E.D. Nixon, but much more than filing paperwork, she is actually leading anti-rape investigations. Parks first meets Colvin one day before a youth group meeting. Apparently, she's surprised. I was looking for some big old burly overgrown teenager who sassed white people out, she says. But no, they pulled a little girl off the bus. Claudette Colvin talks about this. She says that, you know, Rosa Parks took care of me. Uh, She mentored me. She's a quiet woman and kind. But Colvin also says that when those meetings began, Rosa Parks turned it on. Her voice changed. She was commanding. And she made it clear what side of the fence she was on in terms of making sure that Black people were treated justly. And so there's always this side of Rosa Parks that was probably more militant than what average folks sort of associate with her. 
After some NAACP youth meetings, Colvin would stay at Parks' home. She says that she knew how I liked my coffee. She would make me peanut butter and crackers. When Colvin was raising money to cover her legal fees, Rosa Parks' mother baked cookies. Colvin later said she ate some of them, and Parks told her, Claudette, don't eat all the cookies or we won't have any to sell. Colvin needs the money because she's been convicted on all three of those initial counts, including violating segregation law. But she's going to appeal. In May, she and her lawyer, Fred Gray, go before a judge. And... Two of those charges are going to be dropped. The only remaining charge is assaulting an officer, which means Colvin's case isn't a direct challenge to segregation law anymore. Now, community organizers have to decide what to do. Should they seize on Colvin's case, or should they wait? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. After Colvin's appeal, Montgomery's Black activists are faced with a question. Is Colvin the person to launch a protest movement behind? You may already know how this story ends. The activists decide no. Rosa Parks will become the face of the Montgomery bus boycott seven months after prosecutors dropped two of Colvin's charges. So why do they choose Parks and not Colvin? One of the things that we must do is stop (laughs) creating this revisionist history beef between Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks. Kimberly Brown Pelham says stories about Colvin and Parks often falsely pit them against each other, ignoring the fact that Parks actually mentored Colvin. I think it's really important that we hone in on this nurturing relationship between Mrs. Parks and Claudette Colvin rather than rushing to these assumptions that, you know, there was any kind of schism between these two. Betty Collier-Thomas told us activists didn't consider Colvin or another teenage girl arrested that same year as ideal spokespeople. As teenagers coming from working-class backgrounds, they were not the role models that the NAACP and the WPC, Women's Political um, Council, were looking for. When Colvin herself speculated about why the NAACP didn't choose to elevate her within the movement, she said, They felt she would not appeal, quote, to the adults and to middle-class people because I'm dark-skinned. 
since her arrest, Colvin had also gotten pregnant. She believes that pushed away some of her allies. She was unmarried. It was 1955. To Brown Pelham's mind, though, none of those factors was as important as timing and experience. These folks are strategists. Rosa Parks is a grown woman um, with a long record of activist experience. Uh, Claudette Colvin is a 15-year-old girl. And so when you talk about whether or not Claudette Colvin could have been the face, I think when you think about it in terms of the experience that the other individuals bring to the table, it becomes very clear um, that she is not as well prepared to, to take that kind of role. But it doesn't mean that her role isn't necessary. The head of the Montgomery NAACP, Edie Nixon, explained it this way. I had to be sure that I had somebody I could win with. That person is Rosa Parks. That December, Parks refuses to stand for white passengers on a Montgomery bus. When policemen board, Parks willingly stands up. She sits in the patrol car uncuffed. Officials charge her with disorderly conduct. No jail, no assault charge. So this can become a clean challenge to the bus segregation law. That very night, Joanne Robinson, leader of the Women's Political Council, mobilizes her members. These professors tap the talents of their students uh, to help generate these tens and tens of thousands of flyers that need to go out to Black Montgomery to communicate instructions for the boycott. The flyers say, Another Black woman has been arrested on the bus. So this coming Monday, please stay off the buses. With that, the Montgomery bus boycott begins. Rosa Parks is its face and its voice. What immediate uh, results do you hope to achieve? Well, we hope to achieve equal rights. How long do you think it would take? I have no idea how long. Behind Rosa Parks, making the movement happen, are tens of thousands of regular Black bus riders in Montgomery. Mr. Melton, I'm so curious about your first memories of the boycott. What do you remember about when the bus boycott got started? How did that affect you? How did that affect people in your life, your clients? So that morning, the first day of the boycott, one of my customers ran to the one. He said, here come the bus, here come the bus. All the customers jumped up and ran to the one that she was going to wait because there was one man standing on the corner of Charles Trinity Barber Shop. The man worked at the hotel downtown, and every morning he would catch the bus across from the Barber Shop, and we were going to see whether he would get on the bus or not. Police were following the bus on the motorcycles. So when the bus stopped and the bus pulled off and the man was still standing, everybody would start hollering, wow, wow, it's going to wait. Oh, Lord, it's going to wait. Black domestic workers start traveling on foot from their homes on Montgomery's west side to their jobs over on the east. Some walk as many as eight miles a day. For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, have been involved in a nonviolent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. The young pastor, Martin Luther King Jr., heads a new association that organizes carpools on a scale the city has never seen. We had a good transportation system. 
black taxi drivers, you know, they cut the fare. And when people see you walking, they would give you a ride. And you had black business owners who would volunteer their parking lots to sort of function as a makeshift taxi hub, really. Folks like Mr. Malden, who was able to use his business to advance the cause of hmm. black people here. So all the barbershops talked about them was politics and sex. Strategy, Uncle Tom, black militants, you know, the black man country club. Leaders estimate that over 90% of Montgomery's Black residents take part in the boycott. And there's pushback from white people in Montgomery. There are threats of violence. Reverend King's home is bombed. Two months into the boycott, officials arrest over 80 movement leaders and carpool drivers. They're accused of boycotting without just cause. Some boycotters lose their jobs. Still, King preaches at Black churches, including the one Brown Pelham attends now, encouraging people to stick with the boycott. As long as you sit in the back, you have a false sense of inferiority. And so long as you let the white man sit in the front and push you back there, he has a false sense of superiority. For 381 days, the Negroes of Montgomery walked or rode in special carpools. The half-filled and sometimes empty buses made the effect of the boycott felt. With each day of the boycott, Montgomery Transit loses between 30 and 40,000 bus fares. And the boycott lasts for over a year. It doesn't end until the U.S. Supreme Court takes up the matter of segregation on Montgomery's buses. And ultimately, by the time we reach this Supreme Court case, Claudette Colvin becomes uh, one of the essential plaintiffs that lead us to this moment of reckoning in our nation's history. Colvin is still a teenager when she testifies before the Supreme Court, which rules in favor of her and her fellow plaintiffs. Fred Gray, the lawyer who defended Colvin and Parks, would reflect later, I don't mean to take anything away from Mrs. Parks, but Claudette gave all of us the moral courage to do what we did. And I don't believe that we are ever going back to any segregated buses. Colvin's story also shows it really did take a village to realize the goal of fair treatment on the buses. What made the bus park out so successful, every black person in Montgomery had been on the bus and been humiliated by the bus seating arrangement. It wasn't so much the Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. What made it so successful, it was the spirit of the people. Mm-hmm. And when they asked for the boycott, the feeling was already everybody hard. Nelson Malden last saw Dr. King just months before the Reverend would be assassinated. A lot has changed in the decades since. The home where Dr. King once lived, down the block from Malden's barbershop, is now a museum. In 2021, Montgomery's mayor renamed Jefferson Davis Avenue after Fred Gray, the lawyer who defended both Colvin and Parks. That very same day, a judge officially expunged Claudette Colvin's arrest record. She told CBS News, I'm no longer a juvenile delinquent at 82. Brown Pelham told us, it's wonderful to see these civil rights leaders honored in Montgomery. But you can't rename a street after every single person who was essential to making the boycott happen. There just aren't enough streets. And besides, Brown Pelham says, to her mind, symbolic gestures aren't enough. 
I never heard of any of the leadership from the civil rights movement asking for a street to be named after them. What I would like to see is many of the things put forth during the civil rights movement in terms of goals actually come into fruition. Economic justice, fair housing, equal access to education. Many of our public schools are underfunded. How can there be a Rosa Parks Museum and there not be formal teaching of Black history throughout public schools in Alabama. And so I celebrate Claudette Colvin. Fred Gray is deserving of a street, an avenue, a school, a monument, and so many other things. But without teaching our young people about them in their totality, I'm not sure how much renaming a street really means. Not only that, 66 years is a long time to wait to have your record cleared. Change happens slowly. And for many, it comes too late. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we really love to hear from you, so please reach out. Special thanks today to Kimberly Brown Pelham, Nelson Malden, and Betty Collier-Thomas. Dr. Brown Pelham is the author of Black Beauties, African-American Pageant Queens in the Segregated South. You can find more information on the Black women behind the civil rights movement in Dr. Collier Thomas's most recent book, Jesus, Jobs, and Justice, African-American Women and Religion. Thanks also to Philip Hoos, whose book Claudette Colvin, Twice Toward Justice, includes some incredible firsthand stories from Colvin herself that we reference in this episode. This episode was produced by Julia Press, sound designed by Dan Rosato, and story edited by Cheryl Duvall. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>